Welcome to the University of Texas Press Podcast. We are here today with two members of the University of Texas at Austin's Division of Diversity and Community Engagement. Virginia Cumberbatch serves as Director of Community Engagement and Social Equity, and Leslie Blair serves as Executive Director of Communications. Also joining us is UT Austin alumnus and writer Doyen Oyeniyi, who co-created the web series Austin While Black, a project that documents the stories of Black Austinites. You can find those stories at www.austinwhileblack.com. So we are here to talk about, as we saw it, the story of integration at the University of Texas at Austin. But beyond that project, we are here to talk about race on the UT campus and in Austin, Texas more broadly. Virginia, you started work on what became the book as we saw it as a graduate research assistant while you were a student. Can you talk a little bit about how you were introduced to the project? Sure. Well, first of all, Bailey, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, so this has been a project in the making for several years, way beyond my time at the University of Texas as both a student and now as a staff member. But I got introduced to the community of precursors my first year as a graduate student. I was a fellow in the Division of Diversity and Community Engagement's communication department. And so we had a lot to do with sort of event coordination. And one of those was the Human Sweat Symposium, one that I became really sort of connected to and interested in and got introduced to a few of the precursors. And we had defined precursors at the time as sort of the first generation of Black students to help integrate the University of Texas, an integration process that we argue kind of is ongoing and goes beyond sort of the first years of the graduate school being integrated in the 50s and into the early 70s. And so when I started talking to some of the precursors, it kind of sparked my interest and I had conversations with Leslie about some of the work that we done already in helping to document this history. Okay, so let's dive into one of my big questions. Where did the term precursor come from? The precursors came up with the idea when they formed an organization, when the dudes were formed, it was a group of black male alumni who started that organization. And then they decided, oh, we should, you know, be more inclusive and let the women in. And so they hit upon the idea of using the word precursor just as someone who came first. Right. But I think it's really interesting to, you know, think yeah. about sort of the wording and verbiage. When I thought I had misheard them when they told us at first the story. Like, yeah, we just called ourselves the dudes. <laughs> All right. And so it's this really awesome sort of like there's something really interesting about like the casual nature of that word. You know, when you're thinking about the first African-Americans to come to one of the largest public schools in the country and they're like, just the dudes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then realizing the importance of being a part of maintaining not just history, but a connection, right? And you think about how isolating their experience might have been and this idea of how can we preserve sort of community. And so the idea of the precursors is very simple word, but kind of sums up everything that they are, right? Right. Um, And being the first, but not just on this campus, but helping to kind of again, lead this conversation in a more national setting. Keep it going. Yeah. I just also thought it was really interesting how casual and easy the erasure of the women who were with them was. They just were like, oh, yeah, there were also women who were part of this uh, first group to join UT. I was like, okay. But that's, <laughs> All right. you know, I think we talked a little bit about it in the book, but it was the women who actually played a really large role in integrating UT. Mm-hmm. The civil rights movement at the time didn't acknowledge women as easily 
as it did the men. Mm-hmm. But at UT, it was women like Peggy Holland, who, you know, was one of the few females in the School of Business. And she was treated very poorly by professors, like told that the professor wasn't in when she wanted to meet with him, when she could clearly see him. Mm-hmm. But she persevered and she was just one of the women. There was also Cheryl Griffin Bozeman and Ma- Maudie Ates Vogel, who were part of the first lawsuit to desegregate the dormitories. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Maybe just to piggyback on Leslie really quickly, though, I, I think, you know, sort of what Doyen picked up, and we all kind of smirked when we heard that <laughs> word dudes, right? Because this is something that happens in history at large, but particularly when we think about the conversation of uh, black thought leadership and black activism. Um, when we think about the civil rights movement beyond Rosa Parks, we rarely think about women who truly were on the front lines, right? And because there really was this war happening between the intersection of identity and while we're having this women's movement and the civil rights movement and women having to kind of choose which identity that they were going to sort of own mm-hmm. and also being sort of asked to be stepped in the background, not making the large speeches at like the March on Washington, even though they were there and helped write some of those speeches, right? And so I think it's really important to recognize the role that um, Black women played in integrating UT, but Black women have played um, in larger conversations around civil rights. And she had informed me that this project had had sort of several iterations, several lives, where we had created sort of a share your story project where we'd ask precursors to sort of help share their own story, put it on paper, and we hoped to do something with it. Prior to my time here, people like Dr. Eileen Bumfus um, also helped document those stories. And so the hope was that we eventually would have someone on staff with the bandwidth mm-hmm. to really help to not just compile, but to truly document a story that had been woefully undertold at the University of Texas. And so as a graduate student who was studying public policy, particularly conversations around infrastructure and institutional memory and how that informs policy and informs practices within local communities, I was really interested in sort of the intersection and the importance of storytelling as we try to move towards equity as a community. We decided I would just interview as many precursors as I could within a semester. So I met with some precursors in coffee shops, some were over the phone for those that were in Austin. I went to nursing homes. I went to rehab facilities, set in living rooms. And really, for me, it was one of the biggest honors of my life to sit in literally and figuratively at the foot of people I consider to be sort of elders of our community, specifically the UT community. And so what I would do was sort of connect some of the stories thematically and then post sort of a series of them on a website that we created called As We Saw It. Oh, great. Okay, we'll d- dig into the project itself and the research, but I did want to ask Doyen, not necessarily affiliated with the book As We Saw It, but you yourself attended UT Austin as an undergraduate. Mm-hmm. And I was just curious if you want to describe just your general experience as a student yeah. at UT. I had a really great experience at UT. Good. Yeah, Black students are a small part of the population at UT when I attended 2008-2012. And they're still a small part of the population now. But my experience is really shaped by Black student organizations, Black Greek organizations over here. I had a really rich and Black social life on campus, even when I would go to class and would be one of the only Black people in my classes. And it wasn't until after I graduated and stepped out into the larger Austin community that I realized that the, I guess, lack of representation at UT looks different when you're 
in the real world and you don't have organizations to help meet people and help make friends. And so I had this really large question of like, where are the Black people in Austin at? And that was what kind of started me and my friend Evelyn Gogi, who also went to UT at the same time I did on this project called Austin My Black to kind of answer that question. As we continue to live in Austin, we continue to find new answers to that question. Yeah, Austin is losing its Black population at a highest, at one of the highest rates nationally. So Leslie, you championed the As We Saw It project since 2010. Can you tell us a bit about the UT Division of Diversity and Community Engagement itself and why this project was so important? Well, the division is really large, encompasses 50 units and initiatives. It covers a lot of areas such as campus culture, community engagement. Now we're working in innovation and entrepreneurship. The project really started in 2010 after a human sweat symposium, we had a session called Sitting at the Knees of Their Elders, where several of the precursors were on a panel. It really resonated with the students who came. So at the time, the graduate school had a story project for their alumni, and Dr. Eileen Bumpus came up with the idea, why don't we begin collecting these stories of the precursors? So we believe that these stories needed to be preserved. They needed to be passed down. So many of the precursors were older, and several had already passed away. We just knew it was something that had to happen, and it sat on my desk for a really long time until Virginia joined us as a graduate research assistant and was able to take it on. Now that we've sort of introduced everybody, let's dive into the Human Sweat Symposium. So, Virginia, can you talk a little bit about what that case was and what the symposium on civil rights, specifically the one held at at the university in 1986, what the significance of that was. Sure. So Heeman Sweat sort of helped set the framework and the beginning sort of impetus of the As We Saw It book, but also when we start thinking about the conversation of integration. He certainly is a a character that can't go unrecognized. I will say, though, he was not the first to attempt to attend the University of Texas as an African-American, but the first successful person to actually enroll at the University of Texas. So Heeman Sweat uh, was a native uh, Texan and wanted to enter the University of Texas to attend the law school. At the time, most public schools in the state of Texas were segregated and had policy, whether on paper or um, through sort of social constructs, that were prohibiting Black students to come. The state of Texas helped support African-American students who wanted to pursue advanced degrees in the state of Texas. And if there was not a program that met their need at a historically Black college or at a university that was integrated, then the state of Texas would actually pay for them to attend a school in the Northeast or somewhere where there wasn't segregated schools. And so if you think about sort of the impact of that in literally removing thought leadership and talent and skills out of the state of Texas, uh, it's a really powerful powerful sort of concept to, to sort of reflect on. And so Heman Sweat was a, at first denied the right to enter the University of Texas, and he eventually was sort of put into a conversation with the NAACP, which was looking for someone to help sort of carry the mantle of not just integrating the University of Texas, but public institutions as a whole and within the state. And so there were several people they were looking at, and they thought Human Sweat was the perfect person to help sort of carry that mantle. And I think it's really important to note that the Sweat v. Painter law case that eventually opened up the lawsuit 
school to African-Americans actually predated Brown versus Board. So you really realize that this isn't just a conversation about what's happening on the 40 acres, as we call it, or even a conversation around the Lone Star State. This is really around sort of the conversation of diversity and inclusion in higher education as a whole. And so Heeman Sweat um, ended up not only opening up the law school, but opening up all of the graduate programs. Um, Unfortunately, he didn't graduate, um, as you can imagine, sort of the psychological, emotional and eventually physical health consequences of having to go through that really long trial and then the trials of actually getting on campus and still not feeling welcomed eventually took a toll um, on him and he had to remove himself from the program. Uh, The University of Texas didn't actually integrate the undergraduate students until 1956. And so Knowing that Heeman Sweat played such a significant role in actually integrating academic studies at the University of Texas, the University of Texas sort of recognized that and created the Heeman Sweat Symposium on Civil Rights. Um, The first one was held in 1986, but we've carried on that legacy through the Division of Diversity and Community Engagement all the way up to this past spring. And really, it has served as this wonderful conduit to One, remember and honor his legacy, but also to continue to cultivate ongoing conversations around social justice and civil rights to help dismantle systems that otherwise would marginalize groups of people. There are a lot of amazing women in the book, and I know you have Beulah Taylor listed as one of your favorite. Do you want to just start talking about? Sure. Her story is incredible. Yeah, I mean, and one of those women that um, I had the pleasure of getting to know was Bueller Taylor. And it was actually really interesting and I think really speaks volumes about why we as a division, and particularly those of us who worked on the project, felt like there was this really deep sense of urgency to get this project going and documented because these stories were fragile in nature. And so actually Beulah Taylor's daughter, Betty, is actually who reached out to us originally and asked us to to interview her mother. And what's funny is that she had no idea we were taking on this project. Leslie got a call and Leslie ended up passing it on to me. And she just said, you know, my mother has this incredible story at UT. And at the time, her mother actually wasn't sick. She just kind of felt in her spirit that she needed to document this story. And so um, I ended up going, at the time her mother was recovering from a foot surgery. So I went to her recovery center and literally sat at the end of her bed with her children surrounding her. And they just kind of told me their family story. And so it was one of those stories where I think it's really cool. It organically unfolded. It wasn't like, cool, we're going to go interview this person because they were an athlete and we're going to put them in the athlete chapter. We're not going to interview this person because they eventually became a professor. But We went there to interview Beulah, and then this incredible story unfolded about an entire family. And so she attended Houston Tillotson University, which actually becomes kind of a character in the book in itself, because HT, as it's referred to, was actually really pivotal in helping to educate Black people in Central Texas before UT was integrated. And it serves as an incredible resource to Black students who weren't getting those resources from UT, even when they were enrolled as full-time students. And so she got her teaching um, certification at Houston Tillotson, um, but eventually wanted to go back and get her bachelor's degree. And by the time she went back to get her bachelor's degree, she was actually the mother of 10 children. So in this really cool sort of sort of turn of events, she ended up 
overlapping with her oldest daughter for one year when she was enrolled at the University of Texas, which is pretty cool. And so her mom actually, Beulah Taylor, went on to um, major in psychology, get her master's in psychology, and she actually became one of the first African-American counselors um, at UT, which was huge for helping shift the landscape to provide those services to Black students coming from Black women who was also an alum. What we in turn found out that at some point, there were five out of the 10 children enrolled at UT at one time. And we haven't been able to verify it, but we have to think that that has to be a record of some sort to have 10 siblings at UT at one time. And so each of them had sort of individual stories um, that kind of take us through the entire sort of era of integration, which I think is really interesting. Unfortunately, Bula actually passed maybe about four or five months after I interviewed her. And so for th- that to us just sort of signified how fragile these stories were and that in some ways we weren't just helping to document stories. We were helping to heal some sort of emotional trauma that some precursors experienced um, and hopefully bring opportunity for that reconciliation for both families and individuals as well as the University of Texas. Yeah, she her chapter is amazing because she recognized a need in kids not having counseling services. And so she's just stepped up and, and did it. And the way that you to close her chapter, I think there's a quote that she noticed just small shifts in, in the student's social experience. And that's really devastating to hear, yeah. you know, how hard she worked and that the result was just a small shift. Yeah. And I think that small shift, though, probably you know, within a student's whatever one to four years here could probably mean something pretty significant. And I think what Beulah recognized, yes, you've opened the doors for these students to come in and get an academic sort of acumen, right, Mm -hmm. to get their degree. But we all know there's so much more that surrounds sort of your educational experience. It's social, as Doyen was talking about. I'm sure most of her experience was around having those organizations support her in navigating Absolutely. UT. So it's social, it's psychological, it's emotional, it's spiritual. And to be rejected from having those resources or that support system, not having a place to live, only being confined to one dining hall, not being able to participate in athletics when you know you have that ability or participate in school plays. Beulah recognized the psychological trauma and was able to be a part of that. Do you want to talk a little bit about the challenges that you encountered doing research? Sure. So beyond sort of the firsthand accounts of the precursors, we realized that we really needed to fill in some gaps and some holes and so do some uh, supplementary research. And so Leslie and I kind of reached out to the Briscoe Center since they were on campus and we thought they might have the most comprehensive documentation of some of these stories and artifacts. It was not as comprehensive or as um, refined as we would have liked, although the Briscoe Center was extremely generous with their resources and extremely generous with their time. But I think it goes to show sort of the power of institutional memory. And we put And we invest in things that we've demonstrated that we value and that we care for. And so for us, it was a little alarming to know that here we are at the time, we were 60 years, you know, beyond the first class coming in. And no one had taken the time to really sift through this history and elevate it to a place that was accessible. So little things like when I provided dates or names, expecting sort of this robust, you know, 
folder or box or whatever of materials, I was basically handed three very thin vanilla envelopes with sort of loose-leaf papers and photos, and the title of the folder was actually just Negroes at UT. And I remember texting Leslie with a photo of the folder name, just thinking, is this what we were relegated to? It's just we were just Negroes at UT, and very few of the photos or the pieces of paper had dates or names on them. Um, And so that was disheartening, but I think we quickly got over feeling disheartened and instead used it as sort of continued motivation that this project was even more important um, because we were going to put names to these faces. We were going to put dates to these milestones and these moments. But yeah, it's just sort of this ironic thing, you know, that if you spent that much energy and time to keep a group of people out, you think you'd literally create like a blacklist of those students in some way. And I think they documented almost every piece of identity. It was your religion was documented on your transcript. What your father did was documented on the transcript. The last three homes you lived in, but race was not categorized. Yeah, that's how history is erased. And Doyen, I want to talk a little bit more about the structure of your project. Austin Well Black, you have about Nine videos, is it? Ten videos? Um, We have ten episodes. And then we have, there was a short series that we did uh, during Black History Month called Austin Law Black History Month, in which we went to the Austin History Center and had someone there kind of explain to us the history of some of the historical places in Austin, East Austin, like Houston Tillotson and, and Victory Grill. From the very beginning, when we were asking a question of where the Black people in Austin... There was no way, we knew that there was no way that Austin Well Black could be this definitive thing mm-hmm. about what it's like to be Black in Austin. That all we could do is just kind of share people's experiences the best way that we could. And also that it could be part of larger processes and projects and groups and collectives that people were creating and continue to create to address what it's like to be a Black person in Austin. Yeah, so how did you pick who you wanted to feature? Because, I mean, one of my favorites, personally, because I had seen him on the corner of Lamar, the guy who just does freestyle and dance. And mm-hmm. How did you come up, Running how did man. you come through, you know, the picking process of who you wanted to talk to? So Austin Will Black was uh, the first project that either of us had done of that kind of scope And we honestly did not know what we were doing at first, but we had this idea of kind of archetypes of people that we wanted to talk Mm -hmm. to. You wanted to talk to someone who lived in the community for a while, someone who worked in a certain industry, like a restaurant industry, someone who was a student, someone who was a political leader. So we had those kind of ideas in mind. But then there were also just people that people recommended to us. And Running Man in particular was just someone that that Evelyn saw very regularly in her commute. She lived on North Lamar um, around that time, and she would see him all the time. And it was just kind of a question of who is this person? I I, I think I was in the car when her her friend just like pulled over and was like, we see this man here every day. We don't know who he is. Let's ask him. And he was like, we were very surprised when we just kind of pulled over and talked. It was like, he has this rich story and can tell so much about what he's doing at the corner of Lamar and Runberg and what that means to him and his community and what he's trying to get across to people by being there. So, yeah, there are some people we did research on, research on, and 
reached out to, some people who recommend to us, and some people who we just came across that we wanted to talk to. Who are some more of the more unforgettable people that you rediscovered as a part of the As We Saw It project? I'm, I'm thinking about Bill Lyons. Yeah, Bill Lyons is probably my favorite person now in the world. He might be the sweetest man in Austin. I got the chance to interview him. He was one of the first folks that I interviewed. We met at Central Market, and we had lunch, and he was in a full three-piece suit. And already I was like, I love this man. What I discovered, particularly in Bill's story, was this wonderful convergence of all of these social constructs helping to integrate UT. So Bill actually came to UT as one of the first African-Americans to be recruited to play basketball. So as we share in the book, the first known African-American to receive a scholarship at UT uh, was James Means, and he was a part of the track and field team, and that was in 1965. And then the basketball team wasn't integrated until 1968, and Bill was a part of that class of first Black athletes. And as he described in our interview and as we sort of chronicle in the book, them all realizing, A, what a wonderful opportunity it was for them to go to the at the time, the best public institution for athletics, and particularly as African-Americans, when a lot of their peers were going to places like Prairie View A&M, which was also heavily sought campus for Black athletes. Um, so there was this incredible pool of African-American athletes um, at HBCUs at the time that were incredibly competitive. And so for some of them to divert from that path to come to UT was a big deal. And unfortunately, Bill ended up having a career-ending injury, and so he didn't get to participate after his first year. But he really became sort of this leader in creating a safe and sort of protected place for Black athletes, because even though they were getting this great opportunity, for many of the first African-Americans to participate in the athletic teams at UT, they were still, you know, having to deal with a lot of the discrimination both on campus and particularly when they traveled. So there were schools that weren't yet integrated. There were schools that weren't, that were in cities that weren't, that were still kind of underneath Jim Crow, right? And so... Some of these students would go to places throughout Texas or the South and be told that they'd have to stay in another hotel than their than their teammates or told that they weren't going to allow those students to play um, on the field or on the court and UT would have to wield its power to, to make it so that they could. Um, and there was a lot of students that were resistant and they would say, if I can't play, then I'm not, I'm not traveling, I'm not going. But Bill was really this central figure in in supporting those student athletes, not only sort of as a big brother and a counselor, but also academically. So he actually served as a tutor for a lot of the first Black athletes on the football team and on the basketball team. And eventually, the University of Texas took notice and realized what an incredible asset they had on their hands. And so it brought him on as an assistant athletic director to help integrate the football team. You know, I think it's really incredible to think about the fact that while we integrated UT in 1956, the football team didn't integrate until 1971. And I always put that in context through my own lineage. My dad came here in 1978 to go to UT Law School. And so to think only five, six years prior had they integrated the football team is kind of mind-boggling, right? Um, and as we all know, 
football is king at UT and throughout Texas. And so it was a huge moment in time because that is one of the most visceral, most visual sort of public facing activities. So to integrate the gridiron meant something pretty significant for not just the UT campus, but for boosters and donors and the Austin community at large. And he entered the law school, right? Or did Yes. Yeah. So he yeah. came back and, and got his law degree at UT in the 70s and went on to practice law in Austin and also practice law in a way that was focused on civil rights. Um, so he went on to have a wonderful law career, but still very active in sort of the UT community, um, particularly in the athletic community. I love it. And <laughs> was he partially responsible for recruiting Earl Campbell? Is that? Yeah. Yes, very much so. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I think we share this in the book, but he pretty much was responsible for recruiting that first generation of Black football players to UT. Bill was really pivotal in, again, not you know, out of selfishness, just recruiting this black talent to get on the football team, but realizing what it would mean for UT to integrate its football team. And then also realizing the responsibility that UT had to make sure that they weren't just using these students for their physical attributes, but that they were going to get an incredible experience. And if you look at that first class of black football players that Bill helped recruit, all of them graduated. All of them have gone on to have incredible either professional careers in athletics, like Earl Campbell, as we know, and Roosevelt Leakes. Or they went on to have, you know, amazing careers. Julius Whittier, who's credited as the first African-American football player at UT, went on to have an incredible law career. I think Bill recognized the need that these are truly going to be student athletes and we're going to make sure that they succeed. Invest in them, yeah. Absolutely. kind of want to zoom out and talk about Austin in general and sort of our, what we take away from these projects. I mean, I think a good jumping off point is maybe the chapter where it's uh, just talking about the spaces that were limited to students and how, yeah, it was integrated, but then the students couldn't really do anything or participate fully. Mm-hmm. Um, but Doyen, did you, as you were preparing for the panel for the Texas Book Fest, did you sort of identify with that overall concept of space in Austin, the city itself, what spaces are welcoming or? In a way, obviously, like my issues with finding a welcoming space in Austin is not, you know, what the issues of students um, back in the day were like. But I think there is a struggle or a feeling of not feeling welcome when you walk into a space. And this has happened to me a few times. You walk into a space, you're the only black person there, and then people just kind of look at you. And there doesn't have to be any, like, malice behind it, but you automatically feel like you're not welcome there because you stand out and because there aren't faces that look like yours there. So, yes, I definitely have thought about ways in which... Black people in Austin create groups and collectives and spaces in which they can just go somewhere and see people that look like them. Because being in Austin is this very unique and not in a good way feeling of being out and about and not seeing Black people, um, which is not something I experienced in Houston. It's not something I experienced in Dallas, which is where I'm from. I just see Black people in the city because we're there. But in Austin, it's, it's a very pointed kind of approach that you have to take to see Black people, which is an effort that I wasn't expecting to have to make after I graduated and that I know that people who are new to Austin don't expect to have to make when they come here. Right. And so this division of diversity and community engagement, can you talk a little bit about community engagement and what that 
beyond campus entails? Right. Well, the division was created to help foster this better campus culture for students of color. And when it was formed in 2006, 2007, President Powers brought a lot of programs that were already existing together to put them in this unit. We started the Campus Climate Response Team, which takes reports of bias incidents and helps address those and also tracks them so the administration knows, you know, what kinds of incidents are we seeing on campus that don't often get reported. And we know they're underreported incidents. And then also the University Diversity and Inclusion Action Plan, which reaches every college, school, and unit on campus. And that was actually started because of eight black students who went to President Finbez with a list of demands, things that they saw that campus needed. And sort of the the other part of the mandate for the Division of Diversity and Community Engagement is community engagement. And that really was out of a spirit of recognizing sort of or questioning what is the role of higher education? What is the role of institutions of higher education? And realizing sort of this model that we have here, which is what starts here changes the world. Well, what about what's happening in our own backyard, in our community, right? And so how do you create systems? How do you create opportunities so that UT can function less as an ivory tower, right? And more of a community anchor. And I actually grew up here in Austin. And so understanding sort of the positioning of UT as not being very accessible or welcoming to the community as truly a place that's physically inaccessible. There's no parking, right? (laughs) And it was funny, just the other day, someone reminded me that up until only, I think, about a year ago, there is no actual signage on the external part of campus that signifies it's the University of Texas, right? And what that signifies is, is like, you know where you are if you're supposed to be here, right? And so UT, you know, in its history has in some ways um, not always been a good neighbor and been complicit in some of the larger issues that are facing our city. Um, When we think about the divide that was created with the 1928 city plan, Mm -hmm. which was created to create a Negro district, which consequently moved African-Americans that had settled in the first freedmen settlements in actual the state of Texas. So places like Clarksville and Wheatsville and Kitchenville, um, those were all freedmen towns and the first ones that were created in, um, in Texas. And the 1928 plan moved, forcibly removed um, African-Americans and other uh, communities of color to the east side of Austin, which at the time was East Avenue. And they were truly moved to a part of the city that was basically a trash dump. It was where some of the refineries were. And um, when you think about that divide, the role that UT being on the west side of that divide has played in sort of holding some of these systems and some of these ideas of what's valued and what's not valued in place. Our work has really been about dismantling some of those isms and systems Mm -hmm. and leveraging the incredible resources available on this campus and not just fiscal resources, but the thought leadership being cultivated here, the research being cultivated here, right? What is true 
research look like? It means that there should be an output that helps, you know, dismantle something or grow something or expand something. And so our work has really been grounded in being a community partner, being a community steward. You know, a lot of times people will say, rebuild our relationships with East Austin. And the truth is, it's just to build them because those relationships didn't ever exist. And you know, understandably, a lot of East Austin community, particularly communities of color, had formed this distrust with the university. And that is sort of a response to taking land to build a baseball field and not being a good uh, steward of rela- of relationships or resources. And so we can be a part of reconciling some of those broken systems around education equity healthcare access, the affordability crisis that our city is is facing. And so a lot of the work coming out of the Center for Community Engagement and the new Office of Inclusive Innovation and Entrepreneurship um, is to have tangible impact and be a part of disrupting some of these forces. So one of the one topic you brought up at uh, the Texas Book Festival panel that you did was the recent removal of the Confederate statues from UT Austin's campus. I want to ask, maybe, Doyen, I'm putting you on the spot here, but (laughs) do you have any memories of just being a student on campus and being aware of that? Yeah, um, I definitely remember being a student on campus and just, like, taking the time to read the names of who was on the statues and being like, why why are we doing this? And not to talk to someone black, but one of the students that we did an episode on was Lois Gallo, who was a student activist. Mm And um, in her episode, even filming the episode, we'd first, like, we're about to be in the six-pack, which is where all the liberal arts buildings were. And she was like, I don't like being in this space because it feels so unwelcoming with these statues here. I think this is right before they started to remove those statues. And so we moved over, went to the Barbara Jordan statue, and we did our interview with her there. She talked a lot about that experience of being the student and who was more aware, I because her major involved her just kind of going into the history of Black students at UT and realizing how much of UT's history kind of built upon the Confederacy. And she pointed to the Littlefold statue and pointed to the inscription that has since been removed, but was just talking about the greatness of the Confederacy and things like that. And it was through talking with her, even though I'd been aware of some of the statues, just realizing how deeply embedded that kind of history and celebration of that history specifically was a part of being on campus. And it does kind of shift the role or perspective of my time in camp on campus. And also made me a bit more grateful that I had had those Black organizations to create a safe space for me on a campus that was unwelcoming in a lot more ways than I'd realized So yeah, that was definitely, you know, luckily a small part of my experience at UT, but I was very happy to see those statues gone. Even on my way here, I was like, bye. Right? Yeah, (laughs) we walked past one, yeah. Yeah. And I I think it's, you know, as I listened to Doyen talk, I think one of the things we realized in writing this book, and particularly for me and the work that I do, is that UT is sort of this microcosm of these larger sort of policies, practices being Um, sort of carried out at the city level, at the national level. So when you think about 
spaces and the importance that we put on history and institutional memory and this idea that there are certain spaces that were literally not made for me mm-hmm. or not made for certain identities. Like, what's the work that has to be done to dismantle that? Realizing that a lot of those things around sort of statues and the names that adorn halls and buildings and says, we value this story, mm-hmm. right? And we value and preserve this story over your own emotional health and your own understanding of who you are is extremely powerful, right? And so I think even in this writing this book, we realized how connected that is to these larger conversations of Austin. And Leslie, you can speak a little bit to maybe the campus's role in Mm -hmm. um, making sure that those statues were removed and built. Well, I think credit goes to President Gregory Finves. When he first took office in 2015, student government had presented him with a petition to remove the Jefferson Davis statue. And that's when he formed this committee on the (laughs) historical representation of statuary at UT. And so that was a group that included students, faculty, and staff to consider all of the statuary on campus and to kind of I think the charge was to come up with some guidelines that would help guide people in the future as to, you know, how we want to present ourselves through these monuments. They did a lot of research on the history of the statues, and we held a couple of public forums. The division hosted those, and we also collected input online and through a telephone line, a dedicated phone line. And I was responsible for collecting all that feedback and responding to all the people who called. (laughs) I spent a very odd two months responding to people who were always yelling at me (laughs) over the phone or leaving messages. And then when I'd call them back, usually, though, they would have calmed down and would be, oh, very gracious and like, oh, you actually called me back. So the decision was made to remove Jefferson Davis and then to maintain symmetry on the South Mall to remove Woodrow Wilson's statue as well. And then after um, Charlottesville, President Benbez decided to remove the remaining four statues. One thing that I found a little disconcerting is not too long ago, it's been in the past few months, there was a Confederate statue re-erected at Oakwood Cemetery in East Austin. Not a statue, but a monument to the Confederate soldiers. And it was approved by the city council. But here we are. I mean, the university had just taken everything down, and they went on and put in the monument. And in East Austin, too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it kind of brings to the forefront this sort of I think this was ultimately the the argument that got, you know, leadership at UT to take down the the monuments was this idea that there's a difference between acknowledging the history that's taken place and celebrating it, right? And so this idea of having one of the most visual places on campus, right? That's clearly a space of celebration, right? Whereas contextualizing that within a museum, within a history center is this idea of of knowledge, learning, and recognition of what took place, but not necessarily a context of celebration. And I think that's going to continue to be sort of a tug and pull as a nation of how we deal with history, not erasing it on either side, right? 
but um, finding the proper way to tell those stories. How does UT, as it's making these changes, as Austin is making these changes, acknowledging that UT was a place in which Confederate allies, supporters felt comfortable, how does UT not erase its own history and remain accountable for that? No, I think that's a good question. I think that's back to the point of not erasing the history, but recontextualizing sort of the visual components of that history. I think it says something very different to me as a student, to me as a community member, to walk on campus and see a Confederate statue mm-hmm. on the main mall mm-hmm. and say, well, that's a place of celebration. That's a place of value, right? Yeah. Versus seeing that statue in a museum, seeing that statue in one of our history centers and mm-hmm. saying, oh, wow, I have an understanding that UT has just recently ascended to this idea, right, mm-hmm. of, of of values of, of equity and diversity inclusion. I mean, all of these changes and adjustments are necessary, but do you worry that Progressive Austin ticks that off the box and says we renamed Robert E. Lee Street and, and now we're our Progressive Austin again? I think that is sort of the ongoing frustration um, with Austin, right, is that we are self-proclaimed, yelled at the rooftop, liberal. progressive, liberal, innovative city. And I struggle with that, um, particularly in my work that I do, but also just as a native Austinite, having seen how that self-proclaimed title does not hold weight in the experience, the lived experience of all of Austin. And that while that is mostly around the conversation of how we vote, but not necessarily how we function, right? And so voting puts people into positions, voting um, says yes to certain policies, but have we actually disrupted or reconciled the systems and how those function at a local level to create the most economically segregated city in the country? If we were truly innovative and progressive, we'd be leveraging those resources to reconcile some of those systems that have failed people. And I think it also goes back to this conversation of representation and presence, right? To be one of the fastest growing cities in the country that in the mid-2000s, we were simultaneously losing our Black population. Mm -hmm. Those things work at odds, you know? People go where their jobs are, right? So the idea that we're losing a Black population means there's something innate or foundational to us as a community that's not valuing the experience of people of color. Um, And so I think there's a ton of work to do about raising the consciousness and then creating action around policy and practice that says it's not enough for you to vote liberally, right? right? It's not enough for you to put yard signs up in your front lawn proclaiming who you're voting for as if that's the end of the work, that's the end of the struggle. Mm -hmm. But it says something when you have the opportunity to vote on a proposition that builds affordable housing in West Austin, you say yes and you don't say no because you don't want certain communities moving into your community. And so I think Austin has a lot of work to do to truly live up to a title that we gave ourselves way too early. Yeah, Dillian, do you want to talk about where your articles... I mean, it's something that I wrote for Thrillist right before South by Southwest last year. And they wanted an essay to kind of do something different than the go to this place Mm -hmm. and see these sites. And I was like, well, the only way I can talk about Austin is how to 
pay attention to what's happening in Austin while you're in Austin. Like Virginia said, I spoke to her for that um, because she is someone who's grown up in Austin and is doing this work in Austin to make it be the kind of city that it claims to be. We've talked a lot about the role of institutions and in making sure we undo these sort of systems of, of exclusion. But do you want to talk a little bit more about personal responsibility, especially for the white population in Austin? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, actually, after this most recent midterm election, I got a lot of social media messages and text messages from my well-meaning, lovely friends who happen to be Caucasian. And there was, you know, sort of this wake up of like, oh, this liberal bubble that I live in doesn't produce the outcomes that I wish and sort of this reckoning of the work I do in the voting booth, right, isn't all the work to be done. And so, of course, we, you know, we use this terminology, this idea of what does white privilege mean, right? Um, but I think it's we need to make clear that it's not just white privilege. We all have certain um, identities of privilege and it's understanding what those are and recognizing that when we walk into certain rooms, when we occupy certain spaces, how does that privilege serve me and how does that privilege maybe work to silo someone else or marginalize someone else? And that particularly has become important conversation within the way that neighborhoods are shifting in terms of their demographics, right? So Austin, particularly East Austin, is going through mass gentrification. And most of those people being displaced are African-American or Latinx. And one of our professors actually did this incredible research around Eric Tang, Dr. Eric Tang, the, the displacement that's happening uh, physically, but the social cultural displacement that's working. So this idea of even if you've been able to sort of economically hold on to your home, what happens when you feel socially or culturally displaced? And you know, this new generation of people moving into that community have no understanding of the history of that community. They kind of believe that the world began when they rolled up, right, in their Subarus, creating the 27th brewery, right, <laughs> when we've been asking for a grocery store right. with fresh foods for 20 years, right. helping to create avenues for economic development. The idea that you've had folks for years try to get loans so they could build businesses and the first person to roll up right in this new vanguard of of the East Austin community is able to build their coffee shop or their you know artisan suite or whatever that looks like. And so I think the personal responsibility comes at having an understanding of the context that you're navigating, the history of that, what, what your presence does in that space and then what opportunities you have to be a part of healing that community, knowing that taxes are what they are, economic forces are a little bit outside of our control, but how you situate yourself in that community is very much in your control. And so that's part of the, the, the individual responsibility. But I think the other part is realizing that this is not a black or brown problem, right? This is an Austin community problem. And so the only way for us to truly reconcile that is for everyone to take accountability, right? And that's the corporate world, that's the nonprofit world, that's the civic government world, that's institutions of higher learning, right? And that part of that is educating yourself and exposing yourself to conversations outside of our silos. And I think that becomes one of the most visceral experiences as people of color is that Austin is in these silos, right? And we know the silos that 
make all the decisions and get to sit on boards? Where are you allowing opportunity for multiple lived experiences to sit at the table or those lived experiences to help build the table, right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, making sure that the responsibility and the onus doesn't fall on those individuals or communities, but you're doing your due diligence to be a part of that solution. And I think that personal responsibility is this sort of consciousness that's just now being awakened, yeah. particularly in places like Austin that has enjoyed living in this fantasy bubble of like, this is the best place to live. And it's like, yes, but for whom, right? Mm-hmm. Or this is an incredible land of opportunity, but for whom? And now people are realizing that, oh, I have to break outside of my bubble. I have to care about things that don't maybe and immediately impact my lived experience in order for this to be a city for everyone. Yeah. And what, what are, uh, Doyen, your beat for Texas Monthly? Is it, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what you have written recently or have you taught, touched on these topics for Texas Monthly or? I have touched on these topics for Texas Monthly. I've written a little bit about the statues on campus when that was not just um, a UT conversation, but yeah. national conversation that we were having. As a journalist, I kind of want to follow back or piggyback on what we were talking about, about personal responsibility. Yeah. It is a very near and dear kind of topic for me as a Black journalist because when we talk about people who are, I guess, with this election or the previous election, newly awakened to the realization that their city or their state or their country is not the place that they thought it was. I have a problem with that kind of reaction. I've had a problem with it since 2016 because there are several Black journalists who have been doing the work, and not just Black journalists, journalists of color and some white journalists who have been doing the work of talking about the kind of country that we live in and the history of slavery and oppression that has really shaped this country in so many ways and informs the direction that we've been headed in and are headed in unless we do a drastic change of course. I kind of want people to not just listen and be like, okay, I understand what you're saying, but to actually believe people when they're saying, this is what the country is like, this is what your president is like, this is what the state is like, and these are the problems that I've experienced in my reality, and this is how it shapes how I exist in this space. And I think if that had happened a bit more, if people have been believed and understood and listened to and their stories valued, I guess few people would be shocked by the reaction or the response of the election. With diversity, I think that word has been kind of co-opted and it's just kind of a buzzword and there isn't enough action behind it. It's one thing to welcome more POC into your um, workspace or your publication. It's another thing to elevate their voices and really act on what they're telling you. I think that's even the space that, you know, UT has evolved in is that Diversity is not enough, right? So we talk about diversity. That's just purely numbers. That just means that we've created a room full of people of different identities. But if we're not actually caring or addressing the lived experience that happens within this system, Mm -hmm. right, then we haven't done our work. And then moving, and that's inclusion, right? But what do you do with those voices, Mm -hmm. right? Do you just document that we captured them? Or do you move towards creating an equitable experience for for all people? And so I couldn't agree with Doyen more. I think one of the 
larger um, frustrations out of the political conversations of the last four or five years is this shock or this verbiage that drives me nuts, which mm. is, this is not the America that I know. And we're yes, like... it is. It's the one I know. According to whom? History. Right? Just read history. Exactly. It's like, well, why don't we read as we saw it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll let you know this is exactly the America that we've come to know. Mm-hmm. Break outside of your siloed, not just community, right? But even comfort your comfort zone, your complicitness, your apathy. And that doesn't just happen with the idea of like you attending community events. Who are the thought leaders that you're listening to? To Doyen's point, who are the journalists that you're reading? Who you follow on Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. Or Instagram, right? So that you realize like, oh, this world that I thought existed for me is not the entire world, right? And I think that realization can help us move more quickly to this idea of the work that has to be done. Um, I think to to add to that one last point, just your question about what can white people do, there's this whole point for me that when we talk about, oh, elevating voices, I mean, people are speaking and telling you their truth all the time. It's just, are you listening and believing them? And I think... For white people, it really takes some deep investigation into why when a black person or a person of color tells you, this is the America I know, this is a history that I am familiar with, what is the investment in not believing them and not acting on what they're telling you? What what like implicit biases that make you want to defend? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like what, what stake do you have in white supremacy? Mm-hmm to deny that it exists when someone is telling you that it exists. Why do you not want to challenge that? Because that is kind of what it boils down to for me. People aren't lying when they tell you that they're facing oppression of a certain type. So why do you not want to believe them? Why do you not want to really ask these hard questions about the world that you live in? And, and, and I guess it's because it is a hard question, because you have to really question so much of what you've taken for granted. But... Um, Again, you have to explore what your stake in is in something that um, is hurting people. Yeah, you're upholding the same patterns of history. Mm -hmm. Upholding or dismantling. You can got to choose one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate the comfy circle. I know. Thanks for listening. To find out more about the University of Texas at Austin's Division of Diversity and Community Engagement, please visit diversity.utexas.edu. And to learn more about the books that the University of Texas Press publishes, including As We Saw It, The Story of Integration at the University of Texas at Austin, please visit us at www.utexaspress.com.